five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches. I'm in Los Angeles today, Hollywood to be more specific, with uh, photographer David Burnett and... It's funny, when I was driving up here today, I was thinking about you and thinking about how I would describe you if someone asked me who you were. And because, to me, photography has changed so much in the past few years, I almost felt like saying that you were a photographer, for me, wasn't enough because I think you've done so much over such an extended period of time. But I'm just curious, obviously you are a photographer, but how, if I met you somewhere and, said, and you said you're a photographer, and I said, oh, what kind of photography do you do? How would you describe that? Well, I used to be a magazine photographer when magazines, the, the, the magazines that I worked for were more plentiful and more bountiful. Uh, all it takes in this day and age is one new picture editor and, and you know, you do a pirouette out the door. But for 50 years, nearly, it's really 48, 48 years ago, I went to work as a, had a summer job with Time Magazine while I was in college. And it kind of hurts to say those numbers because it doesn't really feel like what does 48 years feel like yeah, I have no idea really but uh, uh, you know we're we still think of ourselves as PFJs you know photo frickin journalist yeah and um, it is not always what one does but it's still you know there's still occasionally uh, companies that want to get that photojournalistic editorial look whatever that is I don't know either and um, so it's kind of what I'm still doing, and I'm still trying to keep doing at it. I'm not ready to stop and teach. I'm not ready to to totally give it up and just mine my archive, which is probably would be the smart thing to do at least for a year or two. Well, but it's been an amazing 48 years, that's for sure. I mean, just to run through a few of the things that you have accomplished, World Press Photo of the Year, Magazine Photographer of the Year, the Robert Kappa Medal, which I think has the coolest sounding name of any award you could possibly win. It's pretty good, yeah. Although the Oliver Rebeau, is it Rebeau? Olivier Rebeau. Olivier Rebeau yeah. Award. I mean, you've done, these are some really significant awards mm -hmm. in the photojournalism space. Uh, I mean, any of the, if you had just done a single one of those, it's a pretty impressive thing. Uh, but before we, we talk about the career, there was something that was just bugging me today all the way to L.A., and I thought, I'm going to ambush you with this. And, and I have no idea what your stance is on this at all, but the first thing that I wanted to talk about was social media. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't like social media, and I was on everything for a long time, and then one day I got up and I said, I don't believe this anymore. I looked around and I thought, this is kind of phony, it's kind of fake. And I'm meeting a version of people online and then meeting them in person and you realize very quickly that there's an online identity. And I, because of the position that I'm in and sort of the jobs I've had in the past, I know a lot of photographers all, all over the place. And when I hear photographers complain and they're concerned about things like being paid and being respected and published and printed, and in some weird way, I think that social media is like crying wolf all day long. It's you, you post and people say kind of, you know, look at me, look at what I'm doing. And mm -hmm. you do that tens of dozens of hundreds of times a day. And after a while, people kind of get 
sort of beaten down by the, the sheer volume of people that are out there doing that. And I think for the most part, what people are posting on, on social, what photographers are posting, is not really good work. And it's almost like, I think it's smarter to wait until you have something to say that's well done and then present it. But obviously that's not the world that we live it's in. Not, it's not the cool way to operate. Uh, yeah, yeah well, sure. I mean, how do you yeah. feel? It just drives me nuts. I think about it all the time. Mm -hmm. I deleted all of my social media accounts about a year and a half ago with the mm -hmm. exception of Twitter, which I only kept because I work for Blurb. Mm -hmm. And God forbid this job ever goes away because it's the best job I've ever had in photography. But the day that it goes away, I'm deleting my Twitter account and I'm never going back to any of this stuff. But how do you, how do you see that affecting mm -hmm. the industry? Well, it's, I see it in many ways the same way you do. They're just, it's this kind of um, indulgent, it's, it sort of brings out the self-indulgent side of, of a lot of people. And you mix that with people who are uh, desperate and everybody's desperate like who isn't desperate? Uh, it creates some really odd uh, situations. I mean, I'm on Facebook. I find it interesting to be on Facebook to kind of see what people are doing. The way Facebook operates though, you don't really ever, like I have 3,000 something so-called friends, probably about a third of whom I really do know and okay. are, are friends. That's pretty and a good. lot of people who would just be, fr you know, for a while I was just saying, you know, yes, 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 to yes, everyone. yes. Yeah. But the people, uh, the only people who we ever see, like, without searching for them are the few people who you do kind of search for, I guess. I mean, it's not like um, you get to see all of what those people are doing. So it's kind of a phony thing anyway. Yeah. Uh, based on whatever they decide at Facebook headquarters that they want it to be that you're allowed to see. Um, I see people posting way too much stuff. I think way sometimes way too personal mm -hmm. stuff, especially yeah. if they're people with kids and stuff about the kids. Like you just don't need to have all that on there in public. Yeah. And I think in maybe in 10 or 20 years, there will be some regrets about it. It is kind of new and exciting and, you know, moving into a neighborhood near you. I mean, it's, it has all of those elements of attraction. Uh, what I have tried to do is every now and then, uh, usually with some anniversary, D-Day or the other day, it was um, the, whatever, June 16th, I think, was the anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11 mm -hmm. that I happened to be at. So I I found a frame that I liked of, of one of those pictures from 1969 and put it up there. And what I try not to do is to just put a picture up and say, uh, you know, aren't I cool? I was there when this happened, which right. is what also what a lot of people, I think, yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, which isn't to say that I'm like Mr. Perfect on Facebook. I mean, I make as many self-indulgent screw-ups as the next person, I suppose. but. To me, it's, it's only really interesting if you can tell a little bit the story of what's going on at that moment or what led to it or enlighten a little bit and, mm -hmm. and make, it, make it interesting. And, sure. and um, for the most part, I'll write you know, a couple hundred words, maybe something a little bit longer uh, from time to time. But I try and explain it. First of all, because especially for young photographers, they have no idea what it used to be like in the days before cell phones, yeah. before the internet, before laptops, before all of this stuff that we have. Right. Uh, they have no idea what anything was like and, and how 
you were forced to operate really by the seat of your pants mm -hmm. and your little baby Sony shortwave radio that would get you BBC World Service. Oh, those are so great. To find out what in the hell was going on in the world. And, yeah. and you know, we just constantly uh, amazed. I was talking to a group of uh, communication students this morning and just the, the mere act of trying to describe to a 23-year-old what life, a professional working life was like with telex and a shortwave radio instead of all of the modern tools is almost, it becomes laughable. And, and it's funny because I, I am hard pressed to tell you how we ever knew about any of these things. And how did we, you know, how did I know to go from, how did I know to go from Vietnam to East Pakistan and to, to, and, and to West Bengal to do a story on the Bengali refugees. Nowadays, you would have gotten a Twitter feed and you would yeah. have clicked on it and gone to some uh, uh, you know, link that would tell you about it and you would find out in five minutes. And in those days, when all you had was telex and a shortwave radio and phones that mostly didn't work, yeah. And yet we did all these things. When you look at what was done in all those pre-digital years, it's really unbelievable the amount of stuff that was produced. And in many ways, I think that it was kind of unaffected um, by the, the, uh, the self-aggrandizement thing, which I think chimping and... and uh-oh, the dog is uh -oh. taking Tyrone, serious offense at something, which I like. I've never had easy, a dog on the easy. recordings before. Go easy, Tyrone. <laughs> well, I think... But anyway, ahead, no, I just... That I think there's something that when, when you know, you sh there, there's this whole empowerment, sort of this faux sense of empowerment, which um, I always liken it to that scene in... It was the movie Castaway where Tom Hanks yeah. is on the yeah, airplane yeah, sure. and yeah. ends up in the island. And the first time he gathers the wood together and he rubs the sticks together and he does one of these, I have made fire. Yeah. I am a human and I have made fire. And it's like you take some crappy picture on your digital camera and you flip through, you chimp through the back and you see an image and you just kind of do, I am a photographer, I have made image. And there is... Definitely uh, uh, the sense of people feeling like they're these photographers, and they don't always have that much to show for it, but yeah. it's, it, it appeals to the kind of the wrong part of your brain, I think, and makes everybody uh, susceptible, well, not everybody, but a lot of people susceptible to this sort of overly self-important yeah. uh, sense of what they've done. So there's three things. One, the the plane crash scene in Castaway was what I remember because it was so real looking and right. freaked me out. Yeah. Secondly, I had a conversation the other day with a 17-year-old uh, kid who was very smart, was working in the medical field. And he, after speaking to me, said, I'm really glad that I talked to you because you really opened my eyes. I kind of thought I knew, already knew about everything in the world. And I said, why on earth would you think that? You're 17. And he tapped his computer. And I said, that's not the real world. That's a computer. And, I, mm -hmm. and as we were on, we were on a train and we looked out the window and I said, oh, that's Trestles. That's the most famous surf break in Southern California. And he said, what's a surf break? So I, you know, that's sort of on one side. The thing, the thing about the social media that, that to me is the really telling factor is that it feels like 
everyone is is so much drinking the Kool-Aid. Right. And and the thought that I had was, okay, let's 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 make a hypothetical situation here. Is I am a photo editor or an art buyer, and I'm 46 years old, and I have an assignment to give to someone. And let's say that the assignment is you are going to cover the drug war in Juarez, and I'm looking for a photographer. And I come to your website, and I see Iranian Revolution in 79. I see the Chilean coup. I see that you shot Olympics. And I think, OK, well, this is a guy that knows his way around. But how many Instagram followers do you have? And then I look, and I see that this other guy, this, this other photographer, you know, doesn't really have any kind of track record, but he has 700,000 Instagram followers. And mm -hmm. the crazy thing is, that you're seeing more and more is the following is what's driving right. the decisions that are being made by people who may not even know where Iran is on a map. Mm -hmm. And I've, and I'm not saying that lightly because I once had a photo editor that didn't know where Cambodia was. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is, is absolute craziness. And it seems like everyone is in agreement that it's crazy, but it still happens. And right. it seems like it's happening more and more. So do you feel like that you're pulled in this sort of artificial direction in terms of kind of having to keep up, but yet at the same time, the work that you make is so much better than what most everyone well, else is making. you know, the thing is you have this, uh, um, and then I promise we're going to talk about some no, other no, stuff. No, no, but there's this, there is this sort of weird sense of like, oh, I got 200 people that thought it was yeah, I got cool enough likes. to hit a, a like, yeah. like whatever a like is worth, you know? Uh, and then you see the silliest thing gets a million eight or something. It's like, which one is, is more interesting? And uh, uh, certainly when it's a cute puppy video, I'm right there. Oh, I like yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm liking it. If it's well, a, you have a cute dog, well, too. Well, I have so a cute puppy, yeah, and I yeah. have videos of him. They're not sort of million-like worthy yet, but that's more me than about him. Um, but I think it is very easy to end up falsely chasing these... Um, goals which are elusive in terms of what they really give you or what you're uh, mm -hmm. going to get out of it. But I mean, I also see people who are posting stuff in a, what seems to me to be an almost desperate attempt to not be forgotten. Sure. I mean, I, have, I know people whose work, uh, you know, and they're good, basically, I think a couple of people, and they're pretty good photographers, but there seems to be a desperation about not uh, not being falling off the edge of, of being remembered, you know? Well, how many people that I look at and respect in the photography world, in the art world, mostly the photography world, have said to me, well, quote, I guess I have to now go be on whatever mm -hmm. and name your 15 different social networks. Right. And they all come with this weird justification and I'm not going to get sucked in and I'm not going to compromise and I'm not going to become this like promotional freak. And yet that's, that's what you have to do to mm -hmm. succeed in that. Well, and when you see what happened, I mean, these people uh, that on Instagram, which is, I, we were talking about this this morning. I, I just, they said, why aren't you on Instagram? And I said, you know, for a while my daughter was saying to me, Dad, just send me a picture and send me a couple of lines and I'll post it for you. Because like, I, it was annoying to me. First of all, I had to watermark it. Then I have to crop it square. Then I have to reduce it so that it gets on as a fairly low res image. You know, you don't want to give them the high res image. Um, and then, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of, there, I'm sure there's like three Photoshop actions that you could just press the button and it would do that. But at the same time, it, um, 
it just well, it's, I, I can't get into Instagram that much. And there's so much. I mean, there's a lot of good good stuff on Instagram. That's true. But there's, boy, it's just you got to wade through the stuff to see it. And that's part of the problem in many ways, I think, is that we're just living in an age of, of dump trucks backing up with bad and mediocre pictures. And then occasionally a little messenger on a Honda uh, 150 goes by with a with a good picture, and you you know you try and and that little hot guy on the Honda is trying to <laughs> stay vertical while dodging all of the crap because you have to look at a lot of crap in order to find the good stuff. So maybe it's always been that way. I don't know. Uh, you know, when you only had 36 pictures instead of 1,600 to shoot on your camera, you t you shot very differently. Yeah, and I in the end. I don't know that the pictures are any better because it's true you can do things now with digital cameras you would never have Dreamed dreamt of, of, yeah. of, of doing. And, you know, if Alfred Eisenstadt was alive now, um, I think he would have, like, totally embraced all the, all the new stuff. Just imagine if the guy that shot the Hindenburg had the new 5DS and just ripped right. off, like, 60 frames, right. just perfect high res. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think... Obviously, there's no going back. There's no reason to go back. These are interesting tools. I mm -hmm. think I'm just waiting for the day that everyone says, okay, let's like quit joking. Let's, let's quit trying to fool one another about what this actually is, and let's talk about what it is for real. And it's not, this shouldn't dictate like who's getting assignments if you have, and I get it. There's a lot of desperate people in the photo industry. There's a lot of desperate companies that are right. floating around. They're, they're trying to put, quote, asses in the seats and so if someone has a big social following, it's like, oh, well, let's get that person. Mm -hmm. And you look at them and say, well, that's fine, but don't tell me that that is a good photographer because they're not. They don't right. even know anything about photography, but they're putting asses in the seats. So I lied. There's one more question that's kind of along, okay, along these right. lines, but this is more specific to you. So a few years ago, it's probably been a few more than that now. The work that really, to me, jumped out from you, that immediately differentiated you from the other people that were in your genre, was your 4x5 work and your Holga work that started to show up long after the digital revolution had happened. And mm -hmm. suddenly, you were being featured and written about, and it was like, holy shit, look at this work. This is beautiful work that's being done with an ancient speed graphic camera, but he's working in an industry that's based on speed and timelines. And so many people wrote about it and featured it, rightly so, because mm -hmm. it's absolutely beautiful work. But then there were all these other people that kind of, they weren't complaining, but they were kind of like looking at it from a weird angle. And I think it was because there's so much conformity within the photography industry now, especially in news, because everybody's shooting digital, they're shooting zooms, they're, they're on deadline, mm -hmm. there's less time to shoot, more demand for the imagery. So why, why do you think it was so significant, and why haven't more people peeled off in their own direction in the news industry? Mm -hmm. uh, I can't answer that one, the, the second part, because I don't know. I mean, I was lucky enough in that when I started uh, mucking about with, well, the, the Holga was in basically in 2000, and this Al Gore picture from the campaign just like... Never got, never got used by Newsweek, by the way, who I was working for at the time. Never got published. Um, you know, the good, very few of the good ones actually get published. It's, it does happen. But That's it's, another good story. But it's, but it's rare. Maybe not good. Uh, but actually, story. I don't think that picture was ever published anywhere other than in like a portfolio of mine or something. But that's maybe another So another it was the issue, Gore, Gore campaign and you shot Holga? Yeah. Okay. And I... 
it was, <laughs> it was a, it was the Sunday before the election in Philadelphia with one of these sun coming in and these amazing clouds. So you had the best of both worlds. You had like strong light and also these amazing clouds. And I was holding a red filter up, a 52, my old 52 millimeter red Nikon filter from 1972 or something. And somebody's like, hey man, you know what? You could tape that thing on the lens. It's like, <laughs> whoa, that is an awesome concept. And God. I realized actually that was really funny because somebody said, why don't you just tape it on there? I thought, that is a great idea. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Holga kind of preceded. I, I'd seen a, a book of amazing pictures called Angels at the Arno by, now I'm going to forget his name, uh, Eric Lindblom, okay. who had, you want to talk about great, uh, what we would have used to call a great RF. This guy got two Guggenheims, Oof. two Guggenheims to go to Florence and take pictures with a Diana of uh, statuary. Oh, man. That that's was a awesome. Good and, he did, and he was really beautiful work, what he, what he did with it. And I saw this book probably around 96 or 97, maybe 98, and I bought a Diana that was useless, and then that's when somebody said, oh, try a Holga, and that's when I kind of took off in that direction. And it was one of those things, I, I tried to do at least one Holga picture on every assignment. It would always be in the bag. Mm -hmm. um, I, did a, I did a piece for Time about six or seven years ago on the, the, ten, the 10 best senators. Mm -hmm. And I made one frame of each of them on this roll of film. Just one. Right? That's one all you frame. need, right? And it was almost a cool roll of film. Hey, you know, nobody's perfect. Yeah, whatever. And <laughs> but maybe was, one of those guys wasn't that and, great. Uh, and the 4x5, um, I think that was really, uh, I don't know, I had, I had actually, I have pictures that I don't even remember shooting of the D-Day beaches from, I think, 1984 or 89, so okay. like quite a while ago, yep. 30 years, 25, 30 years ago. I had bought an old speed graphic from a friend at the Salt Lake Tribune, still has Salt Lake Tribune painted on the, on the top hot. of it. That's nice. Uh, shot some black and white stuff at Omaha Beach, mm -hmm. and they weren't great pictures, but there were a couple of them that kind of, kind of worked. And, and then the I just kind of put the camera back uh, on the shelf for a while, and then in 2003, uh, I really remember this very distinctly. I was, we were getting ready to go to war in Iraq, and mm -hmm. I was not going to go. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm too old for this crap kind of thing. There was a, uh, a hearing, a Senate hearing, where they brought up all the great minds of, of government, uh, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and all these generals. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to go, at least let's try something different at home. So I took my old uh, speed graphic with just the simple old 127 Ektar F4.7 and some Tri-X and I went up to the hill and my little baby tripod and I kind of just made a few pictures, yeah. some of which were actually pretty interesting and that I really liked. And I started to think, I need a bit of a longer lens and maybe something faster. Were you on assignment? Or no, this, that you, was you just, just went on your own? I just went on my own. Okay. Used to do that a lot in DC. Interesting point. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I said, 
I did some bunch of reading, probably on the internet, since mm-hmm. it was it was going by then. And I discovered this lens called the Kodak Arrow Ektar, which was a a lens that had been developed by Kodak for the Army Air Corps in the 1940s, and was in these big K24 aerial cameras. And it was a 178 millimeter, seven inch, uh, 178 wow. millimeter f 2.5 wow and it was a well-known sort of a famous lens because it was for the first time they could the uh, the guys flying the recon planes could go in um, other than at high noon they didn't need to go in when it was really bright and they could go in and, and when they had a better chance of surprising uh, enemy Mm-hmm. lines and make their pictures and anyway these lenses became very popular in the 50s and then they kind of got totally Lost. Uh, kicked into history books by the arrival of the the Nikon 1828 which was about 1970 great lens great lens but all of this stuff you know it is just kind of was moving along and and uh, I'm sure there were probably a few people using them on Hasselblads but uh, not that I ever saw it but I I got, and I still use this one, my original one. I've gotten like five or six of them since then. When I bu- and this was like crazy, right? When I bought my first Aero Ektar on eBay, I think I paid like, you know, 58 bucks for it. Yeah. And then. And then I started using it. And, <laughs> and people started finding out. And people out. started. And then the thing that really did it was in 2004. Anyway, I covered the whole uh, of the 2003 into 2004, Democrats all deciding who's going to beat up each other to run against George Bush, which okay. ended up being John Kerry. And um, so I w- everywhere I'd go, I'd schlep this camera with me. And uh, it was a lot of work, and mm-hmm. I always had to have a little tripod. And that's where I kind of came up with this, this uh, phrase that has since become the name of a Facebook user group called Dancing with Speeds, okay. which was my description of how... With my 4x5 on a little uh, $30 tripod, I always go for the lightest tripod, I'd have to kind of wrap my arm around it like we were dancing when I was shooting with, the, oh, with either the, my Holga or the Mamiya 6 or the Canon 10D, which is where yeah, the other cameras at, that I had. At the time, yeah. yeah and yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a, I had a 10D. It was like, wow, I got a digital camera, man. You're, uh, you're cutting edge. That was really right there. And... Um, 2004 was the Athens Olympic Games. Yep. And um, I can't remember who I was shooting for. It was either... Some glamorous company. Probably time, because I did this whole walk-up, also shot with 4x5. Okay. And I did the... 2004 was the 60th anniversary of D-Day, and I did a whole bunch of portraits, all 4x5. But let me ask and you something. So yeah. we're, this is in the, by this time in 2003, 2004, the digital revolution is in full swing. Right. And everybody has converted over to digital. Right. Everyone true. who's shooting film is like the Luddite and why would you be doing that? Mm-hmm. What was the, obviously there was a reception for it because you're, you're, you're out there doing this kind of stuff. But how crazy was that? Were people, did they even know what you were doing? Well, the interesting thing was I, I kind of at the time was describing it as a uh, nervous itch in response to the digital scratch, or okay. vice versa. Right, right, right. That, um, and it's true, I'm, everybody was kind of moving over to the same couple of cameras. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was either you had maybe a D2 Nikon, or uh, whatever the upper version of it, uh, like the... Was it 30D? 
Well, no, was it was it was the it was the the ten D or the the one DX or not one DS. Uh, or no, no, it wasn't even no. that. It was the one D. One D. Yeah, yeah, the bigger the big yeah. moose of a camera, and uh, and so everybody's shooting with sort of the same lenses, the same the same two or three lenses, the seventy to two hundred. Yeah. The you know, 20, uh, what, 17 or 20 to 35. Yeah, 17, 35, And yep. for me, it was just a, an attempt to try and do something that was a little bit different for me, too, and I just wanted to be in a different place. Um, the Time editors were really, I have to say, Time Magazine editors were really great. They were very, they were very Open. into seeing something that was Dif not just different. another picture. And so I did, I did a series on Olympic athletes. I did a series on the D-Day veterans. Um, what else? Went to. Um, I I, th I think it was interesting because it was such a it was such a splash in the pond of people because and I think what came the first response that I remember from your work was frustration from other photographers who were coming across almost as if they looked at you out of jealousy and said, mm -hmm. well that's kind of not fair that he's getting to be able to do that and I think that's a really important point to make about photography is that you You made a decision on your own that this was something you wanted to do. Right. You had no assignment. You went out and did it, and you did some testing. Mm -hmm. You refined your technique, and then you presented it. And they said, because look, let's face it, sometimes the people who are in positions of power at places that use photographs may not know that much about photographs. Right. And had it been left to them, you would have never been carting a 4x5 around mm -hmm. the Athens Olympics. But the images that people remember from the Athens Olympics, in part, are yours. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are significant. Well, that was what really made it go public, which was the fact that I won the sports essay uh, at World Press. Mm -hmm. And that's 10 or 12 pictures. I can't remember how many in the entry. And um, when I went to Amsterdam that April to get the award and to show pictures and stuff, there was a Dutch guy there, this guy about my age, professional photographer, lived just outside of Amsterdam, and who uh, was a, a real equipment nut. And he, mm -hmm. would, he just showed up there and kind of ambushed me. <laughs> it's like, I want to know what you did to yeah. make these pictures. Yeah. I mean, he really, he looked at it, but he followed through, which was kind of cool. And I said, well, it's just a little bit of tilt on an arrow ectar on a 4x5. It was like, it's That's not... That's why the subsequent lenses were so expensive, was the guys well, like that went out and once, bought them. Once it... And he created... He, he, he started calling it the Burnett Combo, which was the arrow ectar on a speed graphic. And then he created a website that was unbelievably detailed in which he... Uh, and, and it just kind of started snowballed, snowballing for, for sure. Yeah. And people were uh, from all over the place were sending him pictures. And he finally he said he had to kind of close entry to it because it was just costing him too much with his Internet provider. Too many, too many hits, too many pictures. And it was getting expensive. Yeah. The site is still up, I think. And... Um, and, and now it's kind of moved over to, to Facebook. And, and what I find so cool about it is that you see people who have sort of taken that, and now, yeah, it's 1000 bucks or 1500 bucks for these Aero Ektars, if you can find them. And they're pretty rare to find now because they're all being hoarded by people. And you did all that. People. Well, it's your it, fault, it, basically. I'll take a little bit of the blame. Yeah. But it was, um, I don't know, it was a great moment to sort of see this thing all come together. And then... Now that we've got this group, 
there are like five or six hundred people who are part of this group on, on Facebook. And, and that's actually where you see some interesting work posted and, and it's really fun to see it. And, uh, and you have people at various levels, a lot of people just kind of starting out or, oh, I just got my first view camera or speed graphic. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who have been doing this for a long time <clears throat> and a lot of people in between. And there is a real uh, kind of a friendship thing going on. There's the, the atmosphere is very nice. There's no bad mouthing and it's, and it's all very uh, clubby yeah. in, a, in a nice way. And you see also that it kind of creates uh, a, a sense of, um, well, it just feels like a safe place where people can, can offer up these weird things. And you have all these sort of mad scientist camera makers who are taking cameras and doing things with cameras that they never would have been meant mm -hmm. or designed to do and sure. making them, you know, putting a lens on a, this lens on that camera, which was never meant to happen, and, and wow, look what they've done with it. So it's really unleashed this creativity, not only in the shooting, but in the kind of camera making uh, realm. And you get all these amateur camera makers out there. Or, oh, yeah. You and know, they're the, the Frankensteins of the, uh, of the camera world, and it's really fun to see what people come up with. They are rabid. I once accidentally signed up for some sort of forum that revolved around the Leica camera. And I mm -hmm. didn't know that I had signed up. And then I drove home and I turned on my computer, and this is years ago, and I had 300 emails since from the time that I accidentally signed up to the time mm -hmm. I drove home, which was not a long period of time. And I panicked and was, this was back in the day where, you know, right. your internet provider, that could be a lot of money. So mm -hmm. I, I immediately got rid of that, but they are uh, pretty fanatical about that. When, when you look at your work, and we've just talked, we just hit on this briefly, but you've covered things like Iran, which I want to talk a little bit more about, and you've covered the Olympics, and you've covered other kinds of sports, you've covered Washington and politics. One, would you describe yourself as a generalist? And yes. two, is that yeah. a problem? Well, it's probably a problem if you're trying to get work of a certain kind, because everybody wants to feel like they have the most competent person for that job if it's gonna you know no one's ever hired me really for a fashion shoot thank goodness you never it could happen you're in well, LA I mean come it on. might happen so far we've managed to uh, avoid it but uh, yeah I mean I've been a generalist which for me has been great because it, it keeps the work fresh the uh, you don't end up going to do everything the same way you know if you're like the if, if you're the this the set photographer at one of the TV networks that might get a little bit mm -hmm. the same, yeah. for example, just as yeah. an example, yeah, yeah, yeah. or an yeah. industrial photographer who works for a company and you're just doing the same kind of stuff all the time. Uh, for me, uh, the, the stuff changes all the time, mm -hmm. and, and that's great. And I really appreciate the fact that, that sometimes I will get somebody who has enough confidence in the fact that they think I can pull something off, even though I, you know, it used to be in advertising, and, and honest to God, I'd get these phone calls from my my first ad rep, and she'd say, well, they're, I mean, it's like, they're looking for oranges, and I said, well, I didn't ever really <laughs> photograph oranges, but I've got apples. They just don't want to see apples. No, they want to see are oranges, yeah. you know? They want to see exactly what they think they're going to see. So it was, it was a... Isn't um, that kind of maddening? It's crazy, but, yeah. you know, it's like when you're talking about creativity, it's like, 
you're creative here a little bit. Come on, like take the leap. But everybody's so locked into these giant structures, like nothing used to drive me more crazy than a pre-pro meeting. Uh, the only thing that was worse than doing a pre-pro meeting in person was doing one on conference call. I hate conference calls. Oh my God. And, and basically all these people who add nothing and have nothing to say, talking. Yeah, but that's, you know, very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, would you rather see your work online or in print? I still enjoy seeing it in print. Um, you know, online you probably have a much bigger audience potentially, yeah. but is it a more, you know, what's... And tell me the dream print outlets for your work today. Mm -hmm. Like if, I, if, if someone came to you with a contract and said, we're going to give you 100 days a year mm -hmm. at whatever could yeah. be what what print outlets are that's you a really after? good question um because europe has a, a lot japan has some great publications mm -hmm. latin america has publications yeah it, i mean the the problem is many of them pay so little that it's very hard to really base your um yeah, your work they, model on it i exactly. mean if you're doing it for somebody else and you can get it produced uh then resale rights then be then that becomes a bit more of a possibility. But um, yeah, if money was no object, I'm sure you could find a lot of, of really, you know, it's everybody calls, it's like, wow, we don't have any money, but we, we really look good on print. Yeah. I mean, the geographic, it's that little format, but it's still, they still have a pretty good sense of how to lay out a story. I just mm -hmm. had first story in several years in the July issue of Geographic on the, the fur trapper uh, oh, phenomenon. Oh yeah, I saw that, I did, yeah. I saw that, yeah. And, and almost all shot with four or five, even though everything was shot digitally and in film. Okay. So it's all, it's, I've done uh, three or four stories for the Geographic in the last uh, eight or nine years, and every one of them I've shot both ways. Mm -hmm. And they've been really good about, you know, scrounging to, f I'm like the only guy who's calling the, uh, the equipment office looking for film. Yeah. Like, why do you need that? Yeah, exactly. But, well, just trust me, I need it. <laughs> and it's, it's getting harder to find, too. Harder, it's harder to get. I've got to shoot a thing next week, and now Kodak is down to these 10-sheet yeah. boxes. It's just the worst. So Yeah, it's getting ugly. It, you know, it always amazes me when I hear people ask that. Like, if people, because I, I shoot pretty much all film. I have a 5D3, but I only use it when there's somebody, like, standing over me saying, mm -hmm. I need these pictures right now, which happens, like, once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. I shoot everything on film, and there's always the two sides of the coin. You get the people at airport security that go, oh, my God, right. I love these cameras. And they yeah. pull out my Polaroid, and they go, this is really great. And we talk about film and how everyone misses it. But then within the industry, you get people that look at you, and they just kind of go, well, that's ridiculous. And... But it's just a different, it's a completely and utterly different experience. And mm -hmm. I've always equated film with a lifestyle and digital with a lifestyle. And the digital lifestyle requires sitting in front of one of these all day long, all mm -hmm. night long. And I have friends who have dedicated their entire adult life to sitting in front of this machine. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sit in front of a machine. So tomorrow when I get up in the morning, I'm going to drive to Photo Impact over here in Hollywood and drop off my film. And I'm going to pay... Don Weinstein to do the work that I would be doing right. sitting in front of a computer right. because I want to go do something else. So when if, is there, um, when it comes to, you, you, you still prefer print, but one of the things that we haven't seen from you yet is this, based on the amazing archive that I know you have, is this unbelievable proliferation of books, mm -hmm. of publications. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen a massive 
monograph. We haven't seen right. the David Burnett series. How do you feel about books? And well, it's like right now we're working on a sports book. Okay. That will be. Um, I think it's kind of fun because it's it's the sort of less likely pictures, and I mean I I'm I'm still one of those people who feel like I'm not quite ready to stop shooting yet. Yeah. And so that gets in the way of being able to uh, to go through and mine that archive in the way that it should be mined, perhaps. You mean for a book with a book in mind? Yeah. Okay. So or there's several. And were do you look at photography books a lot? Do you buy photography books? I don't buy that many, frankly, but I do try and look at them. Go to the bookstore. I go to you know the photo photography stores and kind of see. What about magazines? Are you a big magazine reader mm. or book reader? I mean, where do you where do you look at photography? Is yeah. it mostly online? I mean, I see a lot online. I mean, sooner or later, all the stuff that's out there in print ends up in some form or another online. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to do it both ways, you know. I mean, how much time do you have? And uh, well, the, the thing is that most photographers are trained that the book is the is the designation that you've really arrived. That mm -hmm. someone, a publisher, right. chose you and you were chosen. You have the chops and you have the work to have mm -hmm. done a book 30, 40 years ago. You could have done a book. You could have done a book from Iran. You could have done a book mm -hmm. from Vietnam. We did, well, we did an Iran book. Okay, good. And we did a Bob Marley book. Bob Marley, exactly. Right. Um, and so... And that was really funny because I never thought I had enough... I had spent four, uh, an afternoon with him in Kingston and then a year later, four days traveling on the road with him in Europe. And I thought... You can't do a book on five days' work. I mean, yeah, you just can't. That's but like, you can because you need you need to really get in there and and actually the amazing thing is is how productive those the particularly the one day in Jamaica was. I mean, unbelievable amount of stuff for one afternoon. And I, when I finally took that material in to see to show to a gallery owner in Washington, and he just flipped out and because I'd been trying to you know hey mm -hmm. Chris look at my Vietnam work look at this work look at that work look at the Armenian uh, he had Nothing. no interest he was and he was mostly into music anyway so when I took the Marley stuff in he just did cartwheels that was but, shown here in town right uh, yeah it's actually down at Mr. Music Head yeah Mr. Music he Head still got still has but, some but there's an interesting thing in here because mm -hmm. you're looking at five days of work from Bob Marley and you're saying you know how can anyone do a book on five days of work and you haven't done a retrospective, you haven't done a monograph of David Burnett. And I think it's because, like you said, that you, you don't want to stop shooting. And in your brain, you've sort of signified that this needs to be this massive uh, culmination of things. And if you fast forward to today, many of the photographers that I'm around would think, wouldn't think twice of taking four days of a shoot and saying, hey, I want to do a book out of this. Right. And it, that's a really interesting... Well, I think that's changed my attitude a little bit, too. Well, that's what yeah. I'm, I'm curious yeah. about, because I, the, the Bob Marley work is amazing, Iran is amazing, Vietnam, etc. You, of all people, have the ability to do more books than you could possibly shake a stick at, which I'm not recommending. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty interesting to me, because I sort of... I was trained in school that you worked on a project for 10 years before you even started talking about it. Right. And now it's like a weekend, and you can start talking right. about it, or you talk about it while you're doing it, and it's a totally different thing. I, in 2007, I made a little book that, I, that did really well. And I'm not saying it sold a million copies around the world, but it was written about and featured and landed in a couple of places. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, wow. And it was basically everything I was told never to do in a book. And it really opened up my, my life in terms of publishing. And now I make probably too many books. Mm -hmm. But for, it, it's interesting to hear you say that because 
I keep when I, when I when I found out you were gonna be here and we we're gonna do the interview, I was like, oh, and my my brain just immediately said, oh, I want to go look at the Burnett monograph or the Burnett like mm. retrospective, and there isn't one out there yet. So like, come on. No, man, I mean let's I go. think about it all the time, and it's and uh, and part of it, what I was saying earlier about the putting stuff on Facebook is that I didn't want to just put a bunch of pictures together, but to me, it's. It's about telling those stories, especially because it, it was such a different time, the 60s, the 70s, the sure. 80s. And, and, and the whole way that we worked was, was so different. And so to try and uh, bring some of what that was about into the description of what the pictures are about, to me, that's, that's important. So, uh, but it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of sitting down and editing and writing and... No, it's a lot of work mm. for sure. Yeah, and I am a big fan of. I self-publish all the time. Obviously, mm -hmm. I work for Blurb. I, I self-published, and sometimes I'm sure that people think I'm the Antichrist because I publish a lot of different books. But it's. Um, have you ever thought about? I mean, would self-publishing anything? No, actually, well, a friend of mine has done. Um, uh, Peter Turnley has done yeah, a couple yeah. of books that he's done totally on his own without the Paris book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he did it totally on his own invested in it and made a, an attempt to, to see if, he, if that model would work, and he's done extremely well with it. Yay, Peter. You know, it's you Peter, get right? Him, Peter, yeah. yeah. You get them printed, and they come with the little shipping thing ready to go, so all you have to do is sign it, put it back in, yeah. seal it, drop it off at the post office, and, and that's, uh, you know, that it's a real just understanding that that is possible, that you don't need to line up in front of you know, Tashin and uh, yeah. Random House and whoever, you don't need them. You can, you can, if you create your own audience, you can, and that's a pretty big if. I mean, I, Peter's been very good about that, but. Yeah. And that's actually pretty interesting because I think he's really used his Facebook page to create the audience mm -hmm. for that book. And that's, yeah. that was well, very smart. The big difference between when you started and where you are now, going back to the shortwave radio and the telex, mm -hmm is before there was this nebulous uh, weird area between you and the rest of the world and that that nebulous area is gone you have the internet you have direct connection to people right. and there are people now that are pre-selling copies of the book to pay for the project before it's even been right. shot so right. i mean literally there's any any possibilities of doing this i want to segue just for a second here because i have to mention this person and if i don't mention him because he is the most interesting man in the world you were a co-founder of contact press right uh, with Robert Pledge, who right. is by, you know, that he's, he's the real guy in the Dos Equis ad, is definitely the most interesting man in the world. But where the heck do agencies live in the world today? I mean, when I came through school, it was Contact and Magnum mm -hmm. and JB Pictures and all right. these agencies. Many of the agencies are gone. Uh, stock sales are all over the map. You hear people that love it and you hear people that say, I haven't submitted in years. Um, Contact definitely has a loaded staff of photographers, a really amazing collective of people. But where do these agencies fit today? You know, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's, a, this has been a really tough time because our bread and butter for many years were the weekly magazines mm -hmm. in Europe and in the States, Time, Newsweek in particular, Time in particular. And, um, you know, the, that market just doesn't exist anymore. We, I can remember the first week that we opened the Gamma office and actually had an office. It was the, the Yom Kippur War in 73. Wow. And uh, one of the French photographers had made it into Israel, had shot 
you know, 15 rolls of film or something and had shipped it to Paris and the, the film, a set of that was coming to the States and the material was basically being bid on between Newsweek and Time. Okay. And it um, sounds so exotic. And it was back and forth, this telephone bidding, and it, and it got up to, I think, ten or $12,000. And finally, uh, Bob just made a deal with Time Magazine. And, and, and Newsweek got really angry, and, and they got back on the phone and said, well, you can't just close off the bidding like this. How can you do such a thing? And, and at one point, there was this, we had a, a, a young woman working in the office who was American, but had grown up in Paris because her dad mm -hmm. had been the LA Times bureau chief. Okay. So she spoke French. And, uh, and Pledge is on the phone with the, the Newsweek editor. And, uh, and he says, well, listen, uh, you know, these kind of threats I don't really think are really the kind of way we should be doing business. And, um, and he said, Debbie, Debbie, comment est-ce qu'on dit chantage en anglais? And she, she looks up at him and says, blackmail. <laughs> he says, don't you, you know, I won't accept that you try and blackmail me like this. Because he was making all these threats, you'll never work for Newsweek again. Right. And I thought, this is the first week we're in business. This is before contact, still just starting the, the Gamma office. And I thought, this is not beginning well. Yeah. But in fact, when you realize that for one photographer's work, they were able to get 10 grand, yeah. which at the time would have bought you probably two Chevys. Yeah. You know? And now, uh, well, well, you know, we'll give you 250 for the online and maybe, yeah. you know, 100 bucks. It's like it's, it's just been this sort of double cross lines of availability and, and what we pay for it. And it's this downward slope, the, uh, the Corbus Getty thing, which was supposed to be the great new uh, mm -hmm. dawn of, of agencies, was horrible. I mean, Getty... Uh, seems to have done everything they could do to drive the market down yeah. one day at a time. And, and you know, the, the race to the bottom. Yeah. It's a race to the bottom. So it's, for any agency now, go, there is nobody who's doing well, whether it's Noor or Seven. I mean, individual photographers are doing okay. But that, ki that sense of, wow, we have all this great stuff and we have all these places that understand that there's value to it and are yeah. willing to to pay us enough to be able to keep it going. Those are very few people. And uh, you can still make an amazing deal now and then. It does happen. But it's a very tough time, for, I think, for photographers in general and agencies in particular. Because trying to, to in the age where everybody's a photographer and yeah. everywhere you turn, there's somebody with an iPhone will have made a, a probably a lousy picture of some event. But the... Uh, the shelf life of pictures is, has been yeah. so Decimated. squeezed down now. And, and, you know, basically you look at TV, you look on the Internet, nobody cares. They, they almost don't care how good anything is. Just like, show it to me. Show it to me. Show it to me again. Okay, get rid of it. Now show me something else. And so that, that just generally, I think, has devalued um, the essential value of what photography used to be, be seen as, certainly in uh, reportage or journalistic photography. So a friend of mine called me the other day, and he's long-term project, eight, seven, eight years, been working on this thing. And he was taking it around, trying to drum up some interest, and he was frustrated. And I sent him a text message, and I've known him forever so I can bust his chops a little bit. And I said, no one cares. You just have to realize that no one cares about your project. Mm -hmm. They just don't. And so you have to take that into consideration. Right. It's a reality. They're never going to care anymore. 
So what are you going to do about it? And one of the things that has been sort of in my craw for the past 10 years is I, what you just said about the agency world, I've heard across the board from everyone. And I think to myself, look, you guys as photographers, especially if you're in an agency, let's say like Contact or Seven or Magnum or whatever, you had to, to put your dues in to get into an agency like that. You are a proven commodity. You now have a direct relationship with your audience. You don't have to have a go-between anymore. Mm -hmm. So why not create your own publications and get your own advertising and do it and just say, you know what, to all these other editorial outlets and everybody that's sort of given the 250s, look, don't need you anymore. And you go and you create it yourself. Am I completely high? Is this, is this a, a possibility? Is it doable? Or what is it? Is the photo industry just going to I mean, continue to you know? Slide? It certainly seems like it ought to be doable. We have all the tools, you know. We're, uh, you know, there is definitely a, a sense of of possibility in these kind of things. That there, you're you're really, um, you know, you can collaborate, get a designer, and you get the pictures and you put it together, and let's make a package out of it. And you would yeah. think that it would be easier. I mean, in terms of a print. A printed item, it's still harder because for whatever reason, it gets to be expensive. You have to distribute it. Yeah. I mean, the one thing you don't have to do online is distribution. Just, you know, I mean, you still have to get it out there, but it's not the same as having the truck, you know, the yeah. truck driven by the Teamster that only works between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. or something. Yeah. It's a good gig if you can get yeah, it. Well, yeah. Well, and, and, yeah. and all these gigs are great if they work, but... Um, I don't know that there's actually a. Uh, well, know, I mean, I mean, you're right. I see some of the stuff that that Seven does, and yeah. they, you know, they just had this, um, you know, the future of yeah, future of uh, whatever photography yeah. or future of video or something conference. I don't know if if it's just a great idea thing. Do they actually make a lot of money? Do they, I don't I don't know. I don't but, really. Well, here I mean, we're all trying to figure out what the next the next. <laughs> big or little thing is and and trying to be part of it uh, before it becomes totally worn out so what my, my point is yeah. <clears throat> let's say that let's say that a magazine calls you tomorrow and they say we want you to shoot two days in LA and we're gonna pay you I don't know what it, let's say their day rate is 500 bucks you're gonna get a thousand dollars and you're gonna get expenses whatever your hotel mm -hmm. and whatever what if I came to you and said oh they're gonna pay you a thousand dollars I'll pay you a thousand dollars but we're going to run that in my magazine. That's going to be a, a print-on-demand magazine, and I'm going to get the revenue from ad money. So we're going to take the revenue from the advertisers. I'm going to give it to you directly. That you're going to get the you're going to get the spread you actually want from that work. You're not going to get a little quarter-page thing. Mm -hmm. If it needs eight pages, you got eight pages. If it needs twelve pages, you get twelve pages. And then I'm going to do that same thing with four other photographers, and I'm going to do that every quarter for the rest of the year. To me, what's better? So maybe it's print-on-demand, and there is no distribution outside of it being mm -hmm. print-on-demand. Anyone in the world can go online and buy the magazine. You promote it, I promote it, I mean, everybody My worry it. would be, do people actually go online and spend money on, on a project like that? that yeah, would be, they do. Yeah, well, they see, do. I mean, if, if I could be uh, not convinced so much as just, you know, uh, educated about it. It seems to me that... that if you're looking at something on, uh, but it's a print, pr printed no, I, piece. I understand. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Um, the jump from looking at it online to holding it in your hand is a pretty big jump. Yeah, and it's it's great if you can if you can figure out how to 
how to make it happen and if you could actually get people to uh, to cough it up and and I don't know what the price point is is maybe five thousand copies or ten thousand or something. The, the 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 number of copies would be however many people buy it. Mm -hmm. It could be five hundred, and if the issue is terrible and the work's not mm -hmm. good, they could sell five hundred copies. If it's great, or you could actually set a limit on it and say there's only going to be mm -hmm. five hundred copies total, and then it's sold out. Mm -hmm. People are doing this, and they have bought it, and I've actually done this myself. Really, and I've done it with a magazine of my own work. And this is what drives me crazy: mm -hmm. is I look around at the editorial outlets, and I look at photography, and I look at the state of things, and I'm like. If you have the chops and you have the track record, which you do, and there's a lot of other people out there like you, I look and think to myself, this is the time to jump and to mm -hmm. do something where you eliminate even having to deal with any of these people. I'm not saying that it's going to sustain your life as a right. photographer. No, but, it, but, as but it's a an way amazing to... outlet of your right. work. And your work right. is going to get seen in the way that you want it to be mm -hmm. seen. Big deal. So I just want to plant that well, seed. Well, that's a really good idea. I mean, and the thing is, at that point, then you do need to, I think, probably come back to the social media side of getting the word out that it's that it even exists absolutely and you can, absolutely that's that's really what it's good for but I mean, the great thing is you've been around long enough to know the power of a mailing list mm -hmm. and to me a mailing list is far more powerful than than social media even mm -hmm. social media is great in terms of these massive numbers but in terms of people who connect with you mm -hmm. anyone who signs up for an email newsletter or a mailing list knows they're asking to be bothered by you. So when you contact them via that route, which is very infrequently, mm -hmm. and when that thing lands on them, they typically go, oh, Burnett's done something new. I should stop what I'm doing and pay attention. Whereas on social, it gets lost in the mix of things. Right. But anyway, I think it's just something that I've seen happen, and I've seen other people do mm -hmm. it as well. And it's, I don't know, I think it's really cool, one of the cool I aspects. I mean, is Blurb trying to become part of that? That. Because, I mean, they would be the obvious place to be able to, yeah, we, we, to do we it. Yeah, not to, you know, we kind of already are. Yeah. So, yeah. We're kind of really cool and impressive. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, yeah, no, we make a bunch of different products you can do that with. But mm -hmm. um, so what is, I'm going to end, end with a very strange question, which is not the next one. But what's the dream scenario for you? If I came to you and said, David, you could live anywhere you want and shoot anything and money's not, a, money's not an object, what's the best case scenario for you? Well, that's a really good. I could mean, be the Hawaiian Tropic, you know, yeah. the Hawaiian Tropic Girls contest. It could be anything. Well, there's still a few places that I'd like to go back to that I haven't ever managed to just like buy a ticket and go. Uh, Sri Lanka being one of them. And um, why Sri Lanka? I just I spent a wonderful couple of days there, like. Uh, like a short week there on my way back from Vietnam, 1972. Wow. And uh, they've gone through this horrible civil war and a bunch of uh, very tough years, but now things seem to be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I actually tried, I, you know, I did a sort of a bad version of trying to do one of those Elliot Erwitt uh, Puerto Rico things where, oh, yeah. you know, he did the yep. 2008, it was like 1958, Elliot Erwitt came to Puerto Rico and this yeah. year he came back. So on the 40th anniversary, which was three years ago of that trip, I tried, I couldn't even like, get emails back from the people at Sri Lanka Tourism Bureau. So that was probably <laughs> my fault more than theirs, but, um, you may just have to go on your own. I may just have to pick up and go. Yeah. yeah. That would yeah. be worthwhile. That yeah, has I'd a really phenomenal history. Paul Bowles used to spend a lot of time on an island there and there was a really beautiful book on Sri Lanka that came out a couple of years ago from a European photographer mm -hmm. that I think was self-published mm -hmm. really beautiful I'll try to 
dig that up and send you the well link. it wouldn't surprise me and it was it was just a, it was a lovely place with lovely people and you know just that's one of those things on my little list of places I want to get back to I mean, do realize you know I was going to maybe go back to Saigon this year for the the 40th anniversary of the fall of Saigon with a mm -hmm. bunch of, of correspondents who had been there during the war and, and at the end of the war. And uh, in the end, I didn't go. I can't remember what I was doing instead of. I had something that came up. But, um, you know, some of these trips are really kind of fun to go back and go to a place where you were. I went f 40 years later after the Chilean coup and met these two women who I'd photographed when they were in their teens at the funeral for Pablo Neruda. Okay. And they were neighbor kids, and after a couple of years, they had, one of them moved away. And they, we got it, we managed to get them together again, and they hadn't even seen each other for 35 years. Wow. And then, and just, it was a wonderful little uh, get-together uh, with, we did it for roadsandkingdoms.com, the, the website. And, uh, you know, that to me is, that's really kind of fun. I mean, I, uh, the guy that is running Roads and Kingdoms, Roads and Kingdoms, uh, uh, Nate Thornburg was a time journalist for a number of years, smart guy, good writer, really good reporter, and has got this wonderful website. I would love to be able to figure out, and we're still all trying to figure out where, where the money flow is such that we could make it happen, that what we would have done 20 years ago for Time Magazine, we can do for the website mm -hmm. and go and spend a week in, 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 whether it be Sri Lanka or Chile after the coup, whatever it is, and, and fund something that still can have its own audience and, and it'll be looked for in a very particular place. But it's, yeah. you know, it's a great looking website and I don't mind that there's no print version of it. I mean, I think the stuff really looks good and, and it gets out to a lot of people and that's important that people are able to see the work. So this last question was literally my first or second question that I was going to ask. So I've kind of gone completely off script here, but mm -hmm. I am so intrigued by the Iran story. And what was it like to get on a plane at that time with what was happening in Iran and as an American and go to Iran? Well, I was in Pakistan. I'd been up in Balochistan doing a story, a time story, and I finished that. I had back. 75 rolls of Kodachrome in a throw-up oh, bag. Kodachrome. In a barf bag? Yeah. Oh, nice. And I got to, to Tehran. I was, you know, got back to Karachi, and it was Christmas of 78, and I'm trying to figure out, well, where do I go next? With your shortwave radio and your telex. With my little radio, and I'd been hearing some stuff about that, and I couldn't, you, you know, it was in the days when you couldn't really easily get to India, because one of our guys, Dalit Mehta, was in India. But that didn't, that didn't work, so... Um, thought, well, I'll go, I'll go to Tehran for a little while and just see if there's much of a story here. And I, short flight, got to Tehran, went to the Intercon Hotel, dumped my bags, went to the AP office, which he was the time stringer. And like within an hour, there were reports of this um, shooting over in Esfan Square, and I went with one of their guys and like wow this is this was this is an happening. hour after I got there I'm in the middle of my first gunfight and I just was so impressed by the intensity of it that you realize it wasn't just going to be one of these things that was a flash in the pan and was going to go away the next day I went to the cemetery to the funeral of some of the people who had been killed that day 
and you just understood very quickly that it was such a political story and everything mm -hmm. that was happening had a political side to it. And so I, I ended up staying for almost two months and uh, the end of the Shah and the return of Khomeini and the because flip of the power. And if I'm not mistaken, you have a couple of frames where you're in a room with Khomeini right. and it's like wide angle, guys in the foreground. Right. That picture is like seared into my brain the first time I saw it because I thought, how does an American photographer get in that room? That's a heavy, heavy picture. It was, uh, you know, we had been, he had been, I don't know, four or five days already. And, and uh, there were these, it was at a little school and they were bringing huge crowds of people were coming through to see him. And he'd come every half hour, he'd kind of get up, go to the window and wave and everybody would cheer and and they'd push all those people out another set of doors and bring in another few thousand people. And there were good pictures. I mean, the, the shot of the women in the shed doors with the binoculars. Amy has that right. print, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That was done there as were a number of other things, all from the outside kind of looking at the window, where, whereas um, I knew I wanted to get inside and I kept going to see this, um, the guy who had been told to be responsible for the foreign press, but he never really offered <laughs> anything at his briefings. And so within a couple of days, everybody else stopped coming, literally stopped coming to his briefings because they were just a waste of time, so they thought. And I, um, I kept going and I kept nudging him a little bit every day. And, and av after like four days of nudging, at one point, instead of saying, come back tomorrow, he said, wait a moment. Oh, nice. And there's a huge difference between come back tomorrow and wait a moment. Wait a moment. And um, he then took me and we went, he went and checked something and we went down the hall and, you know, it was like, there's the door. We're in the school, the little hallway of the school and there's the door. And I don't know what's on the other side, but I think that's the door. So you do that little wind, make sure you've got film in the camera. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't want to go in there with a no, camera with a that blank. you thought was full. And the door opens and like, bang, there was, that was the teacup picture was like right there. That was oh, the first man. thing I saw. How many frames do you think you shoot the whole so time? So I probably, I mean, I've got the black and white contact sheet so you can kind of see it. And I shot a couple in color and then I just kind of slinked over to the opposite corner from where he was and slid down on my haunches and just tried to disappear. And I stayed there for probably half an hour. Did he ever acknowledge you? No. no. And he, I mean, the funny thing was, at one point, after about 20 minutes, he walked out of the room, and uh, and I stayed in the room. I was there. I had my little fishing bag and my cameras, and I, I had slid my fishing bag over when I was moving around. And when he came back in the room, you can see it on the contact sheet, he almost tripped on my camera bag, which <laughs> would not have been cool. Uh, I but I stayed there for like, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes, and then... He left, they said he's gone to prayer, so that was it. And you know, I jammed my film in my pocket and nothing was To gonna, make sure nothing would- Nothing yeah. was gonna get in the way of that, yeah. And did the, was the film processed in, in Tehran no, everything or it, everything was, came everything back? Everything was shipped home. And shipped, that's you know, the, uh, the whole airport story of going to the airport and finding- Finding a passenger. Finding a passenger, and that's how we shipped every day. 
can you, and basically what you're talking about is you, you would go to the airport with a bag of film and you would find a passenger and say, hey, I'm David Burnett, I'm shooting for Time Magazine. Right. This is a bag of film, will you take this film with mm -hmm. me? When you someone get off the will plane, meet you. someone will someone meet you. Someone will meet you and at as you come out of customs in Paris or London or wherever it is. And can you imagine today going to someone that you don't know and saying, oh, hey, will you take this it's package like, Every time plane? I hear that announcement at the airport about if someone you don't know attempts <laughs> to give you something. Has any photographer given you like, film? Hey, yeah. Yeah. I gotta ship film. You know, I could talk to you all day long and all <laughs> night long, but I have to end this at some point. Um, I well, okay. I really appreciate it. There's so much I didn't get to cover. I would mm -hmm. love to uh, do a second version of this somewhere down the line. All right. Well, we can do chapter two sometime. Chapter two. Uh, we never got to Vietnam. We never got mm -hmm. to a lot of things. Um, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, pleasure. I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. And I know that my, my, my meager following of people out there will appreciate this as well. So thank right, you so people, much. All right, people, go on Facebook, friend me, or whatever it is you do there. Like me, friend me, whatever it is. Like, like me. me. Oh, please, like me. Please, please. Thanks again. Sure.